You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. All right, our first lesson today is from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we had first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, reading the gospel. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Reading from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, page 838 in your pew Bibles. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. So glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the fourth Sunday in the season of Epiphany, which I know is familiar to some of you and probably new and strange to many of you. But here's what you need to know. In this season, we are pursuing a sermon series that seeks to clarify and focus our reason for existing as a church, Redeemer's Why. And we have said thus far that Redeemer exists to practice gospel formation for missional presence. And that we do so through the seven practices of the ancient church. And if you still have a liturgy in hand, if you want to turn back a few pages to the very front inside cover, you can read more about those seven practices there. Practices of story, identity, belonging, virtue, context, vocation, and imagination. Practices that go about answering the seven fundamental questions that every human being, Christian or not, is already in the process of answering in every way in their life. And over the past three weeks, what we've done is we've explored the first three of these practices, story, identity, and belonging. And if you've missed any of those, you're welcome to go on our website or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to content, and catch up so that we can all be on the same page together. Now today, we're going to examine practice number four, cultivating virtue. Let me say a prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, I'm going to begin by shamelessly repeating a story that I have told from this pulpit more than once and that I tell in our foundations class every semester. So some of you have probably heard this story at least four or five times. I'm so sorry, but there's got to be someone in this room that hasn't heard it. So I'm going to tell it again, right? Because that's what you do when you get old. You just repeat stories. Nine years ago, I was sitting in Jake's Brew Pub in Littleton, Colorado with three of my best friends at the time, Brian, Elliot, and John. We met for drinks every Monday afternoon. They were older, wiser, more mature men. I was kind of the young, restless, immature newbie to the group. If you need a literary example, uh, they, if we, they were the three musketeers. They were Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. I was D'Artagnan. It's very self-congratulatory. And on this particular day when we met, uh, they were patiently listening to me complain Actually, whine is probably a more accurate word about faith and the Christian life. I was complaining about how difficult I found it to grow spiritually. I longed to be authentic and genuine, all the things we like uh, real in my faith, but the reality was I just didn't feel very close to God. And at one point, uh, one of them very gently suggested that I engage or at least try on for size, some of the ancient spiritual disciplines of the church, like prayer and fasting and solitude and silence. And I interrupted my friend and I pushed back. I said, I don't want to do disciplines. I want to be authentic. And that's when one of them leaned in and delivered what is now in my mind, the line. He said, Dan, your authentic self is really not that great. And I just, I'm curious if any of you have ever had that moment where someone has just said something so piercingly true uh, in a way that just devastated you, but perhaps you needed to hear it. Words that just go right past all your defenses and go right to the heart. Were my friends being mean? They were not. We are still friends. I talked to this particular guy two days ago. We're still friends. They knew I needed to change, and heck, even I knew I needed to change. But at the time, I didn't know how. Um, long time ago in church history, St. Augustine uh, had this to say about change. He said, humility is the foundation of all the virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. In other words, he's saying humility is the root virtue, the foundational virtue. And if you think about it, it's very logical. What is humility? It is the recognition that you need to grow in virtue, right? It's that you need to change, that you lack virtue. So without humility, you can't grow in any other way. Now, I think this is interesting, and in fact, a little bit strange, because all of us, no matter who you are or where you're coming from in this room this morning, know that we need to change. Isn't it strange that human beings walk around with this sense that we need to change? Do antelope do that? Do antelope like wander around the African savanna thinking to themselves like, I'm just not living the best version of my antelope self right now. Do amoebas do this? Do they think about how to life hack their way into being better amoebas? Like, no, creatures just exist. But humans go through life with this sense that we need to change, that we need to grow. And we are obsessed with trying to change ourselves. 
from The Power of Positive Thinking to New York Times best-selling books like Atomic Habits, good book by the way, to biohacks, to seminars, to podcasts, to retreats for self-actualization. Last year, over 15,000 self-help books published, not, not read or sold, just new ones, new content put out. And it's predicted that by 2025, the self-improvement industry will exceed 14 billion with a B dollars. So a singer-songwriter like Alessa, Alessia Cara can tell you that you're beautiful just the way you are and the world doesn't have to change, or the world can, you don't have to change a thing, the world can change its heart because you're beautiful. Like, and you can rock out to that while you're on the way to the gym, but guess what? You're on the way to the gym. You know you need to change. <laughs> So we can tell ourselves all day long that we're fine just the way we are, but none of us actually behave that way. And the story of the Bible, fascinatingly, does not shame you for that inner need, that inner desire that you have to change. The story of the Bible actually dignifies that desire. The biblical story begins with human beings not as static objects, but dynamic creatures who begin in virtuous innocence and are meant to grow into virtuous maturity. Growth and healthy change are not fundamentally a response to the fall into sin. They are creational. Human virtue is in creation, but it's a young, it's kind of an innocent virtue. But the descent into sin in the biblical story in Genesis chapters three through 11 so warps and misshapes humanity that it appears to be beyond repair. Vice becomes the norm for everybody. But then the appearance of Jesus, who is the first of the new humanity, brings about a hope for change, even to the most broken and corrupted human being. And the new creation described at the very end of the biblical story, the hope for which we all long, gives us a vision of humanity perfected. Not static, though. Not a static perfection, but a dynamic, growing, continuing to thrive, flourish, without the stain of sin. The human virtue described in eternity is a maturing virtue. And it's into that story, that biblical story, that we have the two texts that Christian and Steve read just a few minutes ago this morning from Romans chapter 13 and Mark chapter 3. And they are both about how people grow in virtue. And to be clear, just in case I'm about to disappoint all of you, this morning we are not going to give a comprehensive layout of Christian virtue in all of its various forms and practices. That would be neither possible nor desirable and we don't have time, okay? What we are going to do is get us started. We're going to give something of an introduction to what it means to practice Christian virtue in answer to the most basic human question, how do I change? And we're going to do this through a series of kind of four sub-questions, okay? And if you're the kind of person that likes to take notes, here are some categories for you. And there's just a logical progression here. What is virtue? Why does it matter? Why is it so difficult? And how do you get it? What is virtue? Why does it matter? Why is it so difficult? And how do you get it? Let's start with what is virtue? Is it the four cardinal virtues of antiquity? Prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude. Yes and no. Yes, it absolutely includes those four classic cardinal virtues, but it's so much more than that. To frame out our answer, we go first to Romans chapter 13. You can turn there in your Bibles if you like, but you don't have to. You can just listen if you, if you want to do that. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us pro- walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So according to the author of this text, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome in the first century, a human being, a person, can go only one of two directions, the path of virtue or the path of vice. And I know that not everybody here today is a Christian, uh, and I know that even many of the Christians in the room might not agree with that statement. But let's just unpack and explore the implications of this for a minute together. Virtue and its counterpart, vice, are paths. They are ways. They are modes of being. They are not states of being. They are not doctrines. They are ways of living. The path of virtue is described in this text with words like awake, daytime, armor of light, put on Jesus Christ. It's describing a way of living that is clear-eyed and aware and open and innocent, both before God and before other people. And then its opposite, the path of vice, is described with words like sleep, night, works of darkness, and then this whole string of things, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy, desires of the flesh. It's describing a life that is veiled, slumbering, hidden, selfish, violent, impulsive. This is important because even if you completely disagree with the biblical sexual ethic being described here, all of us, no matter what we believe, would agree that being aware and open and honest and intentional is better than having your senses dulled and being selfish and violent. And so what you've got to see is that this is describing a kind of objectivity about good and evil, which is, albeit, a very old-fashioned idea, right? And you can see this in the difference between the old stories that we tell and the new stories that we tell. Think about an old story. Think about Sleeping Beauty. Think about Prince Philip. Ladies, what is Prince Philip like? He is pure goodness, right? Like outside and inside. He is just as handsome on the outside as he is virtuous and good on the inside. And that's why he can slay the dragon. Think about Maleficent. What is she like? She is bad news, right? Does she have like this complicated backstory about being misunderstood by her parents? No, she is evil (laughs) through and through. There's good and there's evil and it's objective and it's clear. But news stories are different. Think about Encanto, which has a fantastic soundtrack, by the way. Hola, casita. Who is the evil villain? There's no evil villain. Well, maybe. The grandmother has old-fashioned expectations which are emotionally oppressive to the younger generation. But that's about as bad as you can get in a new story, right? If, uh, if you still have the liturgy nearby, let's, let's look at this from a different angle. Look at the cover art. Some of you are probably wondering, why on earth did they choose such a disturbing image to print on the front of the liturgy? How about something a little more friendly next time, Dan? <laughs> Here's what you see in this picture. To the left, you see the path of virtue. It leads to a home filled with light. The path is narrow, narrower than the path on the right. It's narrow, but it's good. To the right, you see the path of vice. It leads to a dumpster fire, hellscape of torment and suffering. The path is broad, but it's bad. And the paths diverge and all humans have a choice. The path of virtue or the path of vice. The path of goodness or the path of evil. One leads to safety and refuge. The other leads to destruction and despair. So here's a working definition for us. Okay, working definition for virtue. Virtue is a life of walking in the light that is God. It's a life of goodness, not a cheap, 
kind of goody two-shoes rule follower goodness, but a deep, rich, profound, generous, others-oriented goodness that leaves a wake of goodness in its trail everywhere it goes. Healthy relationships, loving families, excellent work in the marketplace, honesty, integrity, loyalty, kindness, peacefulness, stuff that everybody wants and that everybody wants to be around. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, that's nice, who cares? All right, movement number two, why does it matter? What is virtue now, why does it matter? What's at stake when it comes to virtue? Let's just think about ourselves. We'll talk about other people in a minute, but let's first just talk about ourselves. What's at stake for the self? Let's talk about our inner life. Your own personal well-being is at stake here. Walking properly as in the daytime, the Apostle Paul's phrase in Romans 13, that's a life that is not crippled by shame. No secret hiddenness to your life. A life that is open because there is nothing to hide. A life where you're not crippled by insecurity because there isn't actually some deep thing wrong with you that is holding you back. This own sense of being an integrated human being, same on the outside as you are on the inside and therefore having nothing to hide. But that's just in this life. There's also something at stake in the life to come, in eternity. There's an eternal reward at stake. I don't have time to read all of the biblical verses that promise an eternal reward to those who live a life of virtue, but 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 is one of them. It reads, when the chief shepherd appears, then you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, whenever it comes time to talk about things like eternal reward, like every invisible hand in the room goes up, both Christian and non-Christian alike, because we all tend to think, now hang on just a minute, isn't it selfish to be good in order to get a reward? Doesn't that selfishness kind of undo the goodness of it? Well, C.S. Lewis actually addresses that specific conundrum head on uh, in his article, The Weight of Glory. He writes, there are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection to the things you do to earn it. It's quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. For example, money is not the natural reward of love. And that's why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for the real lover and one is not a mercenary for describing it. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that the natural reward of a life of goodness is an eternity of that goodness. The path and the destination go together. This is why for over 2,000 years, Christians have been saying things like, virtue is its own reward. Now that's just what's at stake for the self in this life and the life to come. What about for others? What about for the world? Why does your neighbor care if you are virtuous? And why should you care at all whether or not your neighbor is virtuous? You know, those vices listed in Romans chapter 13 are vices of exploiting relationships, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. And you might think to yourself, who cares? I mean, as long as these things are done in private, as long as they happen between consenting adults, why does it matter? Look, your virtue matters for your neighbor because you and every human being, cannot separate who you are from what you do. And to think that you can love your neighbor well while indulging your most base impulses to use the flesh of another human being to satiate your own appetites is a contradiction. This is why the Apostle Paul, author of the book of Romans, continues his list and ends that list with violence. The list escalates. It begins with things that a lot of people would find appealing, but it ends in something that no one finds appealing 
which is this kind of violence of quarreling and jealousy. Your virtue does not only matter for your own well-being, it matters for the well-being of your neighbor. It also matters for the common good of this world. You and I both know that our world is dying for peace and justice. And to think that you can achieve that or labor for that or contribute to it while being a person of inner violence and inner anger is naive at best and dangerously foolish at worst. The best you'll ever be able to do is to fight vice with vice. And so your virtue matters for your own well-being and for the well-being of your neighbors and the well-being of this world. Now, if virtue matters so much, then we ought to be properly motivated, right? And if that's so, then why is virtue so hard? If we really do have this kind of motivation, why is virtue so hard? We've talked about what is virtue, why does it matter? Now, why is it so difficult? Listen, when it comes time to take up a new, redemptive, healthy, godly, others-focused habit, you and I find that we do not begin on neutral ground, do we? Let's take something incredibly standard, non-controversial, very predictable. You already have expected that I was probably going to say something like this in this sermon. Let's think about something like reading your Bible in the morning, okay? It's a normal thing for a pastor to commend. Why is that so difficult? (laughs) It is. It's hard for me. I know it's hard for you too. It's difficult because up until this point in our lives, we do not have a blank vacuum in the mornings, Our mornings are not already neutral, waiting to be filled with some wonderful new redemptive habit. No, we have other things we have habituated ourselves to do when we wake up. And in order to learn to go to God's word first in the morning, you must first unlearn the things you are already accustomed to doing. And of course, old habits die hard, don't they? There's this old joke that uh, stopping smoking is exactly as hard as taking up flossing, right? (laughs) And the idea being that Knowing something is bad for you or good for you is not enough to enable you to stop or start doing that thing. And the reality, if we can just move a level deeper here, is that something or someone is actually already at work forming you. Most of us tend to think when it comes to our habits that we not only begin on neutral ground, but we begin on neutral ground with all of our own agency to bring to the table. And the reality is that's just not how it works. We're not beginning on neutral ground. We begin in the negative. And we're not working on this as individuals. We're already being influenced and shaped and formed by someone or something or many someones or many somethings. You are already submitted to a system or a pattern of living that is perfectly designed to produce the habits and character that you currently possess. I'm gonna say that one more time. You are already submitted to a system or a pattern of living that is perfectly designed to produce the habits and character that you currently possess. So an author named James K. Smith, who's a Christian philosopher, and he describes human beings as liturgical creatures, which is a very philosophical way of saying humans are creatures of habit. He calls us homo liturgicus. (laughs) And the reality is that the vice in my life are not these one-off bad decisions that I tend to make. Vice has become a habit. And I would suggest, or maybe I don't even need to suggest it, you might just contemplate whether or not vice has become a habit for you as well. I have liturgized myself into vices. And so when it comes to conversations about virtue, at least for myself, if I can speak autobiographically, I am looking for some shortcuts here. 
because unlearning and undoing my habitualized, liturgized vices in my life is simply too much work. I'm too far in the hole. I'm too entrenched in my ways. My old habits die too hard. I need a shortcut. And so I tend to perform my virtue. I can put on a new thing from the outside. And of course, even as I say that, most of you are probably thinking, hey, Dan, you might not be aware, but that's not a good thing for a pastor to do. You know that whole thing you said about authenticity way back at the beginning of the sermon? Hey, you don't need to not give up on that dream. It is good to be authentic, right? And the same is for you too. We know that we ought to be living from the inside to the outside. So what we say with our mouths, what we do with our bodies ought to come genuinely from a place in our heart, from our affections and from our loves. But the reality is those inner affections and loves are so bent and twisted by vice and habitualized sin that the best I can actually achieve is just pretending to say and do the right thing. It turns out fake it till you make it is the mode of being for most of my life, right? And it's interesting because I don't even need the Bible or Jesus to tell me that's a problem. Confucius tells me that's a problem. Confucius writes, the virtuous will be sure to speak uprightly, but those whose speech is upright may not be virtuous. Shut up, Confucius. (laughs) I think it's interesting that he anticipated virtue signaling on social media all those years ago. Well done, Confucius. True virtue is not something you can perform. It must come from the heart. And so what's the problem here? We are formed by our habits, but we cannot habitualize, habitualize ourselves into Christian virtue because Christian virtue requires us not only to perform virtuously, but to be genuinely virtuous in our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our feelings and our affections. I think if you will humor me for just a couple more minutes, we need to go back to that cover art on the front of the liturgy, okay? Let's go back to that painting. I hate this painting. Here's why. I hate it because it says something true. It says that there is a real choice between virtue and vice, and the real choice does lead to eternal reward or eternal damnation. And I hate it because that truth damns me and everybody that I love because I choose vice over and over and over again. And everybody I love does too. But you know, that's not actually the thing I hate most about it. What I hate most about this painting is that It not only tells the truth, it also lies. Here's how it lies. Where is God? Where is God in the painting? He's up in the sky. His hands are outstretched. He offers a choice. This is a God who judges and who evaluates from a distance. It's a vision of a God that is pretty familiar to most religious people. And it's the vision of God that most secular folk tend to despise. And if I can let uh, those of you skeptics in the room in on a little secret, religious people despise it too. We're just too afraid to say anything about it. Now, the good news is that this is not the God of the biblical story. The biblical story tells of a God who comes down, who does not remain at a distance. A God who comes down, who becomes human in the person of Jesus, and who faces the choice. The choice is of virtue 
versus vice and who chooses virtue every time, again and again and again, in a perfect unbroken chain of virtuous words and deeds. And then through his sacrificial death and resurrection, he credits his virtue to the broken and corrupt and twisted and bent people who can't break out of their destructive habits, building an escape bridge from hell into heaven where he trades places with all who will take him up on the invitation. This is the invitation that Jesus has on offer to his disciples when he calls them to himself to come and to be with him and follow him. Did you hear the nuance in the gospel reading that Steve read a few minutes ago? Mark chapter three. Jesus went up to the mountain, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and so that he might send them out, so that they might be with him. Elsewhere in John chapter 15 in a different gospel account, Jesus says a different version of the same idea when he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The invitation from Jesus is to come and be with him, to become his disciple, which is to be with him and to abide in him. Why? Because he becomes the source of life. How? Abiding in Jesus is through practices of abiding. And listen, This transforms the spiritual disciplines. This transforms the way we conceive of redemptive habits. And this makes all the difference in the world. Redemptive habits, spiritual disciplines, listen, they are not primarily a means of growing in virtue, of becoming a better and holier version of yourself. They are a means of abiding in Christ. Oh, and by the way, they just so happen to have the side effect of producing virtue but the difference is everything. Practicing spiritual disciplines to become a super duper virtuous, spiritually awesome person will mean that you will end up hating God and resenting him and yourself and others while being this totally self-righteous and superior person. That's what happens if you leave here today and you with all of your will and strength muster up the courage and the discipline to go and to try harder to be virtuous. On the other hand, Practice the spiritual disciplines to abide in Jesus, to be with Jesus. And you know what will happen? You will enjoy Jesus, (laughs) which is to say you will enjoy God. And as you enjoy God, the virtues of God will flow from Jesus into you through the Holy Spirit in a way that is genuine and not contrived and not faked and not performed. So become a disciple, a practitioner of the way of Jesus through redemptive habits, abiding habits. We have said that Redeemer exists to practice gospel formation for missional presence. And so Redeemer is a parish of people who are in the process of adopting redemptive habits of the gospel. And so if you are here or if you're considering, contemplating what it might mean for you to be here and to be a part of this parish then what you need to know is that you're going to hear us talk a lot about the spiritual disciplines. You're going to hear us constantly go back to this idea of formation through habits. 
and you will be invited to practice those. And we'll be a church that is always in conversation about virtue. And we will be this kind of church, not because we are all on our way to becoming virtuous spiritual rock stars, but because we know that we are broken and corrupted people of vice who desperately need to abide in Jesus. My authentic self is really not all that great, as any family member or friend will tell you. I need to grow and I need to change. And perhaps your authentic self is maybe not really all that great either. Perhaps you need to grow and you need to change. Perhaps you need to cultivate virtue. And so begin by being with Jesus and abiding with Jesus. And virtue will come on its own down the road. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not remain at a distance, offering us only a choice between good and evil. Thank you that you have come to us in Jesus, that you have been virtuous on our behalf, and that our, your virtue can be credited to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that we are invited to abide in you, Jesus, and that in abiding in you, we can draw from you the source of our life and then become the kind of people who are virtuous in ourselves and for others and for the sake of the world. Help us by your Holy Spirit this morning, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.